0: Listener discretion is advised.
3: The victims are typically young women, many of them runaways and prostitutes. The sheer number of murders raises suspicion that a serial killer
4: is at work. In the mountains of Washington, offer some excellent terrain for hiding bodies. You're not finding a large number of bodies.
2: He said to us, like, why would I change the way that I kill these women? Because it was working.
3: I had a problem with killing women back then. you think of that as an illness? I don't know if it wasn't in certain, I just wanted to kill.
0: Uncertainty is the only certainty there is in sports, politics, and serial killer investigations. Big upsets don't happen often, but when they do, the impact is seismic. On April 8th, 1987, five years after the first bodies were found... The Green River Task Force served a warrant on Gary Ridgeway's home, his work locker, and several vehicles. Known for soliciting sex workers and identified as the man who attacked Rebecca Garday, detectives who spent years building the case to go after him are convinced he's the Green River Killer. Carpet fibers, rope, tape, paint samples, Hundreds of items are analyzed at the State Crime Laboratory for anything that will link Ridgeway to the victims or the dump sites where they were found. The lab finds nothing. The Green River Task Force has failed. Gary Ridgeway remains a free man. Resolutely evil like Ted Bundy before him, he goes on killing. I'm Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is Mind of a Monster Ted Bundy and the Green River Killer. Episode five, The Killing Continues.
3: It was early in the morning of January 15th, 1978 that a killer walked into this Chi Omega sorority house at Florida State University and strangled two young coeds to death, beat two others with a club, and then struck again six blocks away, nearly killing another young woman. Police were baffled, calling it the work of a deranged murderer.
0: Ted Bundy got a second chance to kill when he escaped prison in Colorado and made it to Florida. He took that chance in dramatic fashion, carrying out the frenzied Chi Omega murders. The shocking attack also leaves three young women with awful injuries and shatters the quiet, secure character of Tallahassee. In Seattle, even though bodies are discovered throughout the 1980s, the public is told that the Green River Killer stopped killing in 1984. Dig a little deeper, though, and it's clear that Ridgway's spree went on a lot longer. Seattle Times crime reporter and author of The Hunt for the Green River Killer, Tomas Guillen, gives me his take on when Ridgway stopped killing.
5: The bottom line is the police said that the killer stopped in 1984. And that's nonsense. You know, it was our job to check that. Is it true or not? And it wasn't true. And then... In 91 and 93, I had done a lot of crime, a lot of reporting, listing the victims, listing all the women that were still missing since 84, and police didn't want to comment.
0: You think they lied?
5: Yeah, police lied to the public. on when it stopped, and there are probably a dozen or two more between 1984 and the time he was arrested that haven't been found. And some disappeared from... Uh, places where Green River victims disappeared and some were found near places where they had found remains.
0: And they've never been linked to Ridgeway?
5: Everybody's gone about their business, you know. But I don't forget that there were a lot of young ladies after 84 that disappeared and several have not been found. and Nobody's done anything about it.
0: By 2003, investigators interviewing Gary Ridgway share Tom's conviction that he killed after 1984. In this clip, Ridgway describes what he says was his last kill.
6: Gary, tell us about what you remember about the last person you killed.
3: The last person was in 85.
6: I don't need a name, just tell me about what you remember about killing that last person. The nuts and bolts, Gary. Where you picked her up, where you took her, how you killed her. Forget the...
3: Name, the date, the time, all that. Last person you killed. Go. The one in the back of the camper picked her up in the coma. We went back in the back of the camper, opened it up. She hopped in, took off our clothes. I was screwing her there. I got her to turn around, and after I climaxed, I jumped on her and choked her till she was dead. Wrapped my legs around her so she wouldn't fight because she was fighting. and did it with my arm, nothing else. After she was dead, I put my clothes on, took off the jewelry that she had. I took the clothes, put it in the front seat of the truck, headed out to 410, took her to that spot where I told you on the side of the road, drove up that road, pulled her out, went down, the back door was locked, pulled her out, pulled her over to those big vine maples inside the hill, laid her down right there <coughs> Between Vine Maples and the street, about 10 feet down, got back in the truck, drove home, and that was about it. That was the last one. And you never killed another person after that? Never killed another person after that.
0: Describing his last kill in cold-blooded detail, Ridgway says he stopped killing in 1985. But he's a psychopathic serial killer, so he's probably lying. I talked to Candy Diskin for a definitive answer. Can you tell me who you are and what your relationship is to the Gary Ridgway case?
2: Well, I'm Candy Diskin, and my sister, Bobby Jo, was a victim of Gary Ridgway.
0: Tell us a little bit about your family, and then a bit about
2: your sister. Uh, my family that that might be a minute. I mean, that's pretty complex. The family dynamics were. Really unique. My mother, our biological mother, Bobby Joe and I share a mother. Um, we have different fathers. and our biological mother had nine children, but she did not raise any of her children. Um, and the way that it went was um, the three three of us older than Bobby Joe were raised by our grandparents and and then Bobby Joe he lived with her father. And her step siblings. And then we had two other siblings um, who were younger that came into our lives a little bit later. Tell me a little bit about Bobby Joe. Bobby Joe was a Spitfire. That's one of the terms that we always used for her. Just funny, energetic. I mean, just uh, bright blonde hair, blue eyes. She was small in stature but she had a personality that was just larger than life. And tell me a little bit
0: about the trajectory of of her life, what happened next and where she ended up. We all
2: knew that her life wasn't great. There was an expectation for her to be more mature than she should have been allowed. You know what I mean? She basically didn't have a childhood, which was really unfortunate. And I wanna say, if my memory serves me correctly, that she was 12 or 13 when she started, you know, hanging out on the streets and, you know, having to make life choices to be able to live. I don't really know exactly what time that started, but I think it was pretty early teens when she um, was downtown a lot of the time. She was a prostitute and that I can only imagine is the only option that she saw for herself at that time.
0: Yeah, she wouldn't be alone in that. Um, did you have contact with her during these years?
2: I did off and on, uh, and it wasn't great. And when she would come home for the holidays, it was fun. You know, we, we all knew what her lifestyle was, but just being able to see her was just such a blessing.
0: When did Bobby Joe go missing?
2: She went missing in 1987. She had gone down, our our real mother who, you know, just popped in and out of our lives. So she had moved down to Portland, Oregon, and Bobby had gone down to spend some time with her, I guess, but she apparently got arrested for prostituting down there on 82nd Avenue in Portland. I don't remember the specifics, if my mom got her out of jail or just how that all played out, but then she left and... When she left, mom said, well, she's mentioning that she's going to travel to California. She's always wanted to go to California. And of course, her only means of getting there would be hitchhiking. So we were all pretty worried and thought, oh, you know, I hope she gets there safe and contacts us. And that was the last time any of us ever saw or heard from her.
0: Was this, was this common to not hear from her for a while? And, and when did you know it was time to be concerned?
2: It, w- it wasn't uncommon to not hear from her, um, you know, for a month or two, I would say, um, it was when it got to be the holidays and her birthday, and you know, us just saying, "Where's Bobby? Where's Bobby?" You know, it's not like she had a cell phone and we could call her. And what happened next? I remember my mother would speak with the Green River Task Force. They put her on what they called the probable list of victims. I mean, it was so difficult because we would hear on the news, oh, another victim, another victim. And of course, we're always just, you know, holding our breath, thinking, God, please don't let it be Bobby Joe. And then you got the flip side of that. Okay, if it's not, where is she? So just the not knowing was really difficult. Yeah, it was really difficult. And that w- that went on for about four years until her remains were found and identified. Yeah.
0: Wow, that must have been uh, traumatizing. Good to have an answer, but traumatizing to know that, that she had been killed. Were you already following the case? I mean, did you feel like
2: she could be a likely victim yourself? I had hoped, of course, that it wasn't the case, but Just based on us not seeing her, we really didn't know. I mean, for that pit of time, I just kept thinking to myself, maybe she's going to call and say, okay, I've been living in California. Because we didn't know she didn't go to California. Um, So there was always that, just trying to keep hopeful.
0: The uncertainty Candy describes must have been a source of so much heartache. Looking back at the timeline of the investigation, there's further heartache when you realize how focused on Gary Ridgway the Green River Task Force was at the time Ridgway took Bobby Joe's life. Bobby Joe was arrested in Portland while she was visiting her mother and made bail on February 7th. Nobody knows if she tried to make it to California or hitchhiked straight back to Seattle, but she's never seen alive again. The Green River Task Force raids Ridgeway's home just two months later on April 8th. Tomas in with his thoughts on the Green River
5: Task Force. They formed a task force and, you know, basically saying, here comes a cavalry. Now we're going to get serious. We're going to catch this guy. Well, they worked the case, worked the case, worked the case, and they keep finding bodies, keep finding bodies, and it, it peters out. Basically, they disbanded the task force toward the late 80s, because they lost the game. Oh, wow. That's the bottom line. They lost it. And then uh, and then we reported that they're going to end it and stuff. And, and you know what was disappointing? That th- there was no public outcry. Wow. Is that crazy? That, that is crazy. I didn't know that. And partly because I, I suspect, in my opinion, the value that they put on the victims. With Ted Bundy, there were co Here you mm. had uh, young ladies that were more on the street. But even if the different victimology, how do you, in an investigation with over 50 dead and you've been finding bodies in the woods for decades, and you just say, we're going home?
0: We're done. That's really sad. That's horrible. By the end of the first decade of investigation, law enforcement and the public in King County are almost resigned to the idea that the Green River killer won't be caught.
4: The first sign of what we now call the Green River Murders came on July fifteenth, 1982. The killing would continue until March 1984. All of the bodies might never be found. There are 41 known dead, eight still missing. Most were young, children of the street and ladies of the night. Now in 1992, the trail is cold and hope is all but gone. Has the Green River killing really stopped? Snohomish County says a serial killer is active there. Forty women have disappeared since the killing officially stopped.
0: Wait, what? Forty women have disappeared? Something doesn't add up. Forty women disappearing between 1984 and 1992 doesn't sound like the killing has officially stopped. Candy Diskin and Tomas Guillen also don't agree that Ridgway stopped killing in 84, and neither do investigators in 2003.
6: The fuck should we believe that suddenly Gary Ridgway has got uh, the will and the wherewithal to say, I'm done, that's it, not gonna kill any more prostitutes.
3: That's it, can't kill any more. I didn't have a life before. Gary, when you started going with Judith, when you started hanging out with her, and you still did it. You still killed. I still killed. Like I said, the, probably the last two. The probably the last, last two. two only. In 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 '85, and nice I, and that was it. And that was it. Boom. Yes. Done.
6: I'm over. Yes. Judith isn't satisfying that craving for you. You're you're going outside to to fuck some other woman. What? What what is it that Judith is satisfying? What what was so satisfying about Judith? Her life.
3: Somebody to care for. To care for you? To care for me. Did you care for her? Yes. But you're fucking other women. I still had that problem. It's just like alcohol. It's just like alcohol. Prostitution to to me is like alcohol is to an alcoholic. Exactly. But But killing
6: was your real addiction, Harry. Not prostitution. Prostitutes were the focus of your addiction. The killing was what you were addicted to. That's what Gary Ridgway didn't want to do anymore. I didn't want to... Judith didn't have shit to do about you stopping that. Because you just kept on doing it. I did it to people, and that's all. Oh, shit.
0: If you're asking yourself who Judith is and how she stopped Ridgway from killing, let me fill you in. Gary Ridgway is divorced for the second time in 1981. He starts killing in 82 and murders at least 49 women through 1983 into 84. Then, in 1985, he meets Judith Mawson in a bar at an event for Parents Without Partners. Judith described Ridgway as handsome, polite, and adored that he treated her like a lady. They moved in together after two years and were married in June of 1988. When the task force said the Green River killer had stopped killing, maybe moved away, or ended up in prison, he hadn't. He was right there where he'd always been. He just had a girlfriend and carried on killing. In 1978, Ted Bundy isn't reined in by a girlfriend. He's stopped dead by Tallahassee Sheriff Ken Katsaris. I talked to Ken after this.
1: Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry, because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Safe offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, and U.S. News & World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind and I want you to have that too right now get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster there's no safe like simply safe
0: With both Ted Bundy and Gary Ridgway, it's easy to look back in disbelief at the time it took for law enforcement to catch up with the killers. Of course, advances in technology have made modern investigations faster and easier in a lot of ways. But don't for a second think that the investigations into our killers weren't groundbreaking. The Green River Task Force pioneered the use of computing to find links and trends in the 40,000 tips they received. And in Leon County, Florida, Sheriff Ken Casares was at the cutting edge of investigative science. Let's start at the beginning. Tell me what life was like in Leon County or Tallahassee in general before Ted Bundy arrived.
4: Before Ted Bundy arrived into Leon County, specifically, of course, into the city of Tallahassee, the only city in Leon County, people really never thought much about security or safety. People left their doors unlocked. Uh, you know guns were not a big issue except for hunting. Uh, it, it was a town of both the you know educated and and the country uh, where we meshed together because we had two universities, Ted Bundy invading the Kiya house stirred up the city terribly uh, in terms of the feeling of safety, uh, the need for locks and locking doors and All the walks flew off the shelves of all the stores. The gun shops were doing big business. People were buying guns. Uh, Now not for hunting, but for personal safety. So the town changed dramatically.
0: Tell me about your career and when you were elected sheriff and just the types of crimes you were um, involved with investigating before Bundy happened.
4: Well, my career began with the St. Petersburg, Florida Police Department on the uh, west coast of Florida. I became involved in a series of murders as an investigator with the St. Petersburg Police Department while I was there. One after another, women all over 80 years of age were strangled in their home. This was extremely disturbing. All of the women lived alone. They were all over 80 to have died and perished in the night at the hands of someone who in several cases used their own nylon stockings to strangle them. I yeah. became involved in processing those scenes. I did in, indeed come up with the evidence that solved that case. And I was twirling like a top now thinking, you know, I'm, I'm a top investigator, but I really was a rookie who was lucky. I found fingerprints. Those fingerprints were identified and compared to him. He was only 15 years old and was sentenced to life in prison. So my beginning of my career uh, really sent me into the criminal investigation arena. And when I came to Tallahassee, I, I enrolled at Florida State University for a degree in criminology. And I got federally funded a crime laboratory with all of the equipment. So when Ted Bundy struck, I had 10 years under my belt teaching advanced forensics for criminal investigation plus the criminal investigation techniques.
0: Wow. Okay, so Bundy really picked the wrong town with you as the sheriff in Tallahassee. How does your expertise come into play investigating the Chi Omega attack?
4: So in this case, we had fresh, warm, bodies, and I hate to talk about them like that. It's sad to say it in that manner, but, you know, using the terminology of law enforcement, they were fresh death and obviously warm bodies, meaning that marks and other things were preserved still and had not in any way decayed or been destroyed by lack of circulation of the blood. Okay. I attended the bodies prior to the autopsy. I knew that if, if we were going to find any evidence, I needed to be there before they cleaned them up. Uh, and and went for any preparation for autopsy. The first body I examined there was bite evidence uh but it was ripping and tearing of the breast and there wasn't anything left behind in terms of marks. As I examined the second body and turned her over, I saw on the buttocks, on the left side, a bite mark where he came in with his mouth extended open and bit down very hard.
0: So you have bite marks, but no suspect. When do you learn about Ted Bundy?
4: I was leaving the Chi Omega house in my vehicle, driving over the railroad tracks nearby our football stadium. When I got a phone call, there were two cars with phones at that time in in the area. The governor and I had car phones. Investigators from out west wanted to talk to me about this murder case that just occurred in Tallahassee. Uh, They indicated that there was an escaped prisoner Uh, from Colorado that is known to be involved with college women and has killed college women in the past. His method of operation was to abduct from some area by luring a woman to come with him. So I wrote the name down on a legal pad in my car. I put down Ted Bundy, but I I really discounted it. I, I just didn't see. Yes, he escaped. Yes, he'd been gone for two weeks. Um, I I just couldn't imagine that I now was dealing with Ted Bundy in Tallahassee.
0: Oh, wow. You had the name Ted Bundy that morning after the attack. Okay, tell me about when you actually get hold of Bundy in person.
4: Well, I got a phone call and said, Sheriff, uh, this guy in Pensacola that's been arrested, he's asking for an investigator from Tallahassee and a priest. And I said, wow. So I I immediately, of course, tuned in to what's going on with this arrest. I authorized my investigators to go there and talk to him. He he became weird on us.
0: How do you mean he became
4: weird? He wanted to talk, but he wanted to talk under his conditions. He only would talk uh, at midnight uh, where he could see out a window. What did you do? I had him transported back and we brought him into the jail. He was housed in a cell that was lined in steel. There was no place to take screws down and take a light fixture out so that you could skinny through it and escape like he did in Colorado. We had three locks on the door. The keys were put into the hands of three different people. So his door could not be opened by one person. It took three people to open his door. But they sent the fire marshal by the fire marshal came up and said, I got to write you up for this. I said, why? And he said, because you're keeping him in such tight confinement that if there was a fire, you know, he couldn't get out. I said, really? He said, that's right. I said, I'll tell you what. Write me up and call the local newspaper. Tell them that Ted Bundy is so tight in the jail that if even if there's a fire, he can't get out. I said, I want people to know that they're safe from Ted Bundy.
0: Oh, that's excellent.
4: Ted Bundy knew, and he heard the conversation. So he knew that I wasn't playing games.
0: I love hearing all this detail. And now you have a suspect in custody and bite marks on the bodies from the Chi Omega attack. What's your play?
4: Under this situation, what we came up with was that if we got a warrant for his mouth based on the fact that we had bite marks from the scene, that we could enter his mouth like you would enter a home to get any evidence that we believed would be present. And we showed that we had bite impressions and that his teeth would tell whether or not they were his or not. So I showed up at night at the jail at his cell. And I said, Ted, get your brace on. He protested and said, I'm not going anywhere with you. I meant business. So we cuffed him up and we transported him to my dentist's office. When we got to the back door of my dentist's office, we had to go upstairs and up the stairway was a collection of photo art. And Ted Bundy started laughing. I said, what's so funny, Ted? He said, I know what you're doing you brought me to a photography studio. You want good photos of me. I said, you think I want good photos of you? That's terrific. I said, we'll see. We got to the top of the steps and then two small doors swung open. And when those doors swung open, it led to the chair, the dental chair. And there are three doctors with their white schmocks on And they're looking at him. And he immediately said, Ken, you can't do this. You can't do this, where are my attorneys? I want my attorney, I want my attorney, you can't do this. Now, when he said you can't do this, that meant he knew what I was going to do. He knew that we were going to take a bite impression. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Now I'm sure he thought about it because this is the first time we had warm bodies. Think about it. Mm -hmm. There were no other warm bodies in Ted Bundy's past. So no one knows if he bit them or not.
0: Wow, that is so fascinating. Your relationship with him alone is, is remarkable. Had this type of evidence ever been used in court before?
4: Never, it had never made it to court anywhere
0: and how was it received
4: it took quite a bit of convincing for the court to allow the evidence but he had a couple of misaligned teeth and they were so unique um we're lucky that ted bundy did not have well aligned teeth it was the first time they were overused in court and of course it was the only piece of physical evidence we had and it's the only reason why ted bundy was convicted
0: Bundy's second trial lasts a month in the summer of 1979 and is the first nationally televised trial. He is sentenced to death by electric chair for murdering Lisa Levy and Margaret Bowman at the Chi Omega Sorority House in Tallahassee. Bundy's stay of execution is prolonged through a series of unsuccessful appeals, spending 10 years on death row. Ken Katsaris again on being reunited with Ted Bundy.
4: When I left the sheriff's office, I was retained to be the assistant to the secretary of corrections who runs the prison system. And he gave me the responsibility for Ted Bundy on death row. He said, you put the bastard in here, go take care of him, handle his complaints. So I went over to death row. I'm walking down, it's open cells. Death row was open cell bars in the front. I walked down death row. I came upon the only cell that was covered with a sheet and that's a violation of the rules and I said wouldn't you believe it it's Ted Bundy's cell (laughs) so I reached in I grabbed the sheet and I snatched it down he turned around and he was drawing in his breath and raising up his arms ready to just let the person have it for invading his privacy because he thought he was so damn privileged. And he looked and he said, "Ken," Because he hadn't seen me in a while now. And I looked at him and I said, Ted, he walked towards the cell bars and came up close. And he said, what are you doing here? I said, you hadn't heard. I'm in charge of you now. Again, he just didn't know what to say. And I said, "Um, this isn't a political position like my sheriff's office was, but by the way, Ted, would you have voted for me? And, you know, I caught him off guard, and he looked at me, and he thought about it, and he looked up and rolled his eyes. And then he came in close, and he said, Ken, you did a good job.
0: Wow, that's amazing.
4: That just ended it right there. I I knew that he knew that I knew, and that he was telling me that he respected me.
0: On January 24, 1989, Ted Bundy was executed in the electric chair. He is known to have murdered around 30 women, teenagers, and girls as young as 12 years old. The true number of his victims will never be known. Next time, in our final episode of the season, I'll explore the cutting-edge technology that finally put Gary Ridgway behind bars, and find out what it's like face-to-face with one of the most prolific serial killers of all time. Mind of a Monster, Ted Bundy, and the Green River Killer is brought to you by Arrow Media for ID. Your host is Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.